This morning we'll be reading from Ephesians 2, and the words of our text will be taken from verses 11, 12, and 13. For a bit of context, we'll begin reading at verse 1. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,343. Uh, We read from the inspired Word of God, the, the Word that gives life, that gives spiritual life to the people of God. Uh, so that the people of God go uh, through this valley, this pilgrimage, uh, by faith, holding on to the promises of the Word of God. So we read this morning from Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. We'll continue reading through verse 13. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in the words of our text for this morning, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not believe that it is able for a person to live without hope. Even at a superficial level, we know the value of hope, uh, of having uh, a certain expectation of a favorable outcome. Boys and girls, you can think of this even maybe as you're playing a a game, maybe a board game with your your parents and your siblings, maybe it's uh, in an athletic contest. Once that you get this sense that you can't win. Well, then oftentimes don't you just simply lose interest in the entire game. Maybe even you're prone to quit. Maybe your brother or your sister is, is beating you very soundly in a, in a pickup game of basketball or in the game of trouble, and you say, I don't even want to play anymore. And you say that because You've lost hope. Now that's just a superficial illustration. But the pastoral concern that I have for myself 
and by extension for this congregation is twofold. First of all, that there perhaps be some whose soul is so weighted down by burdens and concerns of a variety of sorts that they're tempted to lose hope. Maybe it's because of indwelling sin. Maybe they're weary, the battle against temptation. Uh, Maybe there's physical affliction that so weighs upon them perpetually for which there seems to be no chance of a remedy or a cure in this life. And, And that physical affliction also begins to affect their emotions and even their spiritual outlook. And they feel that they're absolutely crushed underneath the weight of these providential circumstances to the point that they fear they might lose hope. That's one aspect of my pastoral concern. The other aspect of pastoral concern is that there be an individual who hears these words, who has hope but not a solid hope, who has put their hope upon something other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. My concern is that somebody hears these words either as they're gathered here in this auditorium or as they listen uh, through the recording or through the broadcast of the radio ministry and they have contented themselves that they think that things are well because they have this credential or they have that credential. They know their theology in their mind and in their head. They avoid the gross immorality of this culture in which we live. They are conservative in their life and in their political outlook. And so they say to themselves, indeed, all is well. I have hope. I have hope because I am not like other persons. Both of these are pastoral concerns that the Apostle Paul shared. Well, what is the remedy for these pastoral concerns? The remedy is to focus our attention upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again this morning, on one hand I make an apology, but in my apology I make no apologies. We're going to focus upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to focus upon the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. I say I make an apology because we find ourselves repeatedly emphasizing this central truth. But I make no apologies for it because you notice the words of our text demand that we focus upon the blood of Christ. And Christian theology, Christian doctrine, the Bible itself demands that we focus upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, I was reading a commentator, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching uh, in perhaps the 1940s. I'm not exactly sure when exactly he preached the sermon. And he said that many in his day, many hearers had had enough of the bloody doctrine of the cross. But he made no apologies. And in our day also, many say, enough. Enough of that bloody doctrine of substitutionary atonement. 
Give us something more culturally relevant. Give us something more practical. I plead with you this morning, there is nothing more necessary for your soul than to hear about the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing could be more practical for the youngest child who maybe only picks up five words of the sermon to the oldest saint who may hear these words through a radio in a shut-in room as they breathe their last breath. Nothing is more necessary, vitally important, than to hear about the blood of Jesus Christ and what it accomplishes, and that it alone is our hope for time and for eternity. And so we turn our attention to the words of our text in the time afforded us this morning underneath this theme, an exhortation to remember our former situation. Well, notice, first of all, the description of the former situation, and then secondly, the transformation from the former situation, and then thirdly, the reconciliation from the former situation. The theme again, an exhortation, a call, a command, an authoritative encouragement to remember. Remember. And over and over this word flows throughout Scripture because of how prone you and I are to forget. Just like the mother has to say to her children an infinite number of times, remember, remember, remember. And mothers and children, you know this is true. How many times does your mother have to remind you, put your stuff away, don't forget to take this to school? Why does she have to remind you over and over and over and over again? Because we are so prone to forget. And so the Apostle Paul picks up this theme that weaves throughout Scripture, and he says, remember your former situation, the description, the transformation, and the reconciliation. First of all, then, the description of the former situation, the heights from which we have fallen, and then the depths to which we have fallen. Because by and large, there is this danger that we all have to over-exaggerate our spiritual condition, to think that we are pretty well off. And when we begin to think that way, it brings all sorts of problems into our own life and into the life of the church. Now, the church in Ephesus, of course, it was a true church. But as we looked Wednesday night also in our men's Bible study, the church in Ephesus was not a perfect church. This is true of every church. But one of the things that happened in the church of Ephesus was that they lost their first love. In part because of the tendency to forget who they were by nature. And so Paul says in verse 11, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, refers to the fact that these individuals who received this letter, for the most part, 
were not of Jewish ethnic background. They, for the most part, in the physical line, were not the sons of Abraham in the physical line. Don't misunderstand. They are Christians. So in the spiritual sense, yes, they are the children of Abraham, but by nature, apart from God's intervention, apart from God's saving work, Gentiles. Being Gentiles, they were far off. And boys and girls and young people, if you think of the tabernacle or the temple as it existed in the Old Testament times and also in the days of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there were various uh, areas within the temple and the tabernacle. There was, of course, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the high priest and the high priest alone one day of the year could enter into there into the so-called direct presence of Almighty God. He had to enter there with blood. And then there was various courts. There, there was the court in the outside of the temple where the Jews, the Jewish males could enter, and then there was the women's court. But then outside of everything else, there was the court of the Gentiles. It'd be similar if we were to say, okay, in, the, in this auditorium, you know, the special people, they can come here. But, you know, if, if you're not a special person, then you have to be out in the parking lot or maybe even out in the cornfield beyond the parking lot. And that's where the Gentiles had to stay. And there was even a sign above the entryway that went into the inner court that upon pain of death, a Gentile would enter into the inner court. So that if you and I were Gentiles, which by nature we are, if we tried to enter into that inner court, death would be the result. And Paul says to this church, to these Christians, remember what you once were, Gentiles, outer court members, far off from God. But these more details that are given, this being far off from God, you notice verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, foreigners, strangers from the commonwealth, the body, the company of Israel, strangers from the covenants and promise. And we could spend a length of time describing what this meant, but it really is summarized by that last phrase, having no hope and without God. And now there's not a contrast between those two phrases, having no hope without God, is a summary statement of complete alienation and spiritual desperation. Without God. That doesn't, of course, mean that God is limited in His existence. Well, God is infinite also in His presence. He's omnipresent. But to be without God means to be without the favor of God, without a relationship with God, alienated from God. And in his providence, we'll consider this again this evening when we look upon man's misery. Man's misery ultimately is his alienation from God, being separate from God's kindness, from God's favor, from God's goodness. And that's what the Gentiles were. And by nature, that's what you and I are. Apart from God, 
having no hope in the world. Let that sink in for a moment. No hope. Isn't this the very definition, in some ways, of hell itself? No hope. No confidence. No outlook for deliverance. You know, when you are diagnosed with a disease or a physical ailment that is severe and serious in nature, the first question that you want to ask the doctor is, is there any hope of a cure? And if the doctor says, yes, there's hope of a cure, the days certainly are still long and difficult but you make them through because you have hope. But if the doctor says there's no hope, no hope for a cure, it's terminal, well, you see, that's a different matter. And you can imagine the church in Ephesus busy going about its day-to-day activities, slowly losing their first love, And the Apostle Paul writes to them, remember that by nature you were without hope. You were Gentiles. You were alienated from God. But now, and that brings us to our second point, the transformation from the former situation. There's a wonderful connection here if you just look Back at verse 4, and we try to emphasize this last Sunday morning, but God, in verse 13, kind of picks up that same theme, but now. And the but now of verse 13, of course, is based upon the reality of the but God in verse 4. So the transformation that we consider in our second point is a transformation that at the very heart of the matter is a work of God and His sovereign, redeeming grace. It's not a self-transformation. It's not as if the Apostle Paul says, well, you were once far off, but you worked yourself back into the favor of God. You did all the right sorts of moralistic, legalistic things. You resolved on a Sunday morning that you would live differently in that week, and you did that for a number of weeks and a number of years, and gradually, step by step, through your own knowledge and through your own spirituality, you brought yourself back into a conscious awareness of the existence of God. The Apostle Paul says, nothing of the sort, but now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. And that's passive in the sense, not that you brought yourself near, but you were brought near. See, that's the heart of the transformation. Those who were without hope, those who were far off, those who were in the outer court, have been brought near by the sovereign, redemptive work of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gets to the heart of the matter that we must wrestle with. How can we, Gentiles... How can we be brought near into the presence of God? 
And, and this is what the entire sacramental system of the Old Testament uh, was laboring to teach the people. All of the endless sacrifices, the very structure and the architecture of the temple, it all pointed to one truth. There is a way to be brought back into the favorable presence of God, but it's only through the substitutionary sacrifice of blood. You can't, you can't climb over the wall. You can't tuck in underneath the curtain. You can't sneak in the back into the Holy of Holies. And sadly, this world is filled with individuals who think that they can somehow get in to the favor of God some other way. Even though Jesus Christ said so powerfully and so pointedly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Yet innumerable persons think, ah, but I can make it some other way. I've got some good works in my pocket. I've got some orthodoxy up my sleeve, and I'll just roll that out on the day of judgment, and I'll be fine. I don't think I'll ever forget talking to a man who had been born and raised, lived many, many years in the Reformed church, and had come to his deathbed. And I asked him, I said, how will it be when you meet God after your death? And he looked at me, and in all honesty, he said, I hope God will look at the good that I tried to do and that that will offset the evil that I did. And my heart broke. And I said, how can this be? That this individual has lived 60 plus years in the Reformed Church and this is how he's going to face eternity? Hoping that God will look at the good that he tried to do? And put that on one hand of the balance and hope that it offset the sin? You want to talk about being without hope. If that is the way any one of us is banking for eternity, you, my friend, are without hope. Because that equation will never turn out with a favorable result. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, except through the work of God, especially the work of God in and through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And that brings us into our third point, the reconciliation from the former situation. First of all, to be very, very clear, reconciliation means the appeasing of the offended party for the sake of the offending party. Reconciliation is not just both sides. It's not just God saying, okay, I'll, I'll relax my holiness a little bit, and the sinner saying, okay, I'll try to be a little bit better, and then the two meet in the middle. Though God is in his infinite righteousness and his infinite holiness and his infinite justice, which cannot be compromised. It can be satisfied, thanks be to God, but it cannot be compromised. Reconciliation is between this infinitely holy God and an infinitely sinful person. Now I need to ask you straight up this morning, do you know in your heart upon what basis those two parties can be reconciled? 
To put it simply, what is your hope when you stand before a holy God as a sinful person? If you in your mind and in your heart say anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, my friend, you are wrong. And you are in danger. The Apostle Paul says we have hope, but notice that this hope is very particular. We have hope because we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I say it to my own guilt, but at times in churches we are so busy talking about everything except the blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul, by contrast, could hardly write a sentence without referring to the blood of Christ because that is the basis or the manner of this reconciliation through the blood of Christ. And, and that blood of Christ, and this is the mystery of the atonement. It's a mystery because it's of the mind of God. It's a mystery that has been revealed to us. But this is the mystery of the atonement that is only by the blood of Jesus Christ shed as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. And it's only as we receive the sacrifice by faith, which the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, that then we have the basis for our reconciliation, including the forgiveness of our sins. There's no other way to be reconciled to God other than the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why the, the doctrines and the truths, such as the very real human nature of Jesus Christ, are so vital. Because we need the blood. And now I well understand that, that many in our day will laugh and mock and ridicule this proclamation. But I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, based on the authority of the Word of God, that this is the only way of reconciliation. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very simple. We hear so much in our day when you look at the culture of different classes of people, different groups of people even now intersectionality and where you are on the whole paradigm of identities, there are two classes of human beings, spiritually speaking. There are those without hope, and there are those with hope. Spiritually speaking, that's it. You can say it another way. There are those who are without the blood of Christ, and there are those with the blood of Christ. And notice that without hope corresponds to without the blood of Christ. And with hope corresponds with the blood of Christ. So that if a person finds themselves underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, by the simple exercise of faith, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that person has hope, has confidence. 
On the contrast, if a person is without the blood of Christ, trusting, hoping, relying in anything else, they're without hope. They may have everything that the world says they should have, but they don't have real hope. And now a couple points of application as we draw to a conclusion. First of all, to those in the church who have a solid faith, remember, remember that by nature you were once Gentiles, but now you've been brought near. And so you say this sermon very well, all the points of orthodoxy, hopefully, uh, are, are met. What does it mean to me as a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, strong in the faith? Remember your former condition. And what should be the result when you remember your former condition? Humble expressions of praise and thanksgiving. See, perhaps the danger for the mature Christian is that you forget your former status by nature. Remember that you and I once by nature were Gentiles, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So yes, we have hope, a certain confidence, but if we know that and if we remember our former condition then our souls have to be released to sing forth the praises of God and to worship Him both now and forever. To an individual who may hear these words with a true but weak faith, overwhelmed by the doubts and the fears that at times can afflict a soul, a loving reminder that your hope is not in the strength of your faith. Your faith can be real faith and it can be weak faith. Your hope is not in the strength of your faith. Your hope is in the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. And even the weakest exercise of true faith that finds refuge in the blood of Christ brings a person hope. But allow me also to have a word of application to anyone who hears these words who has placed their confidence in anything other than the blood of Christ. I need to lovingly tell you this morning your confidence that you have is not well grounded. Confidence in the flesh, confidence in heritage, confidence in lineage, Confidence in traditionalism, conservatism. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, had all of those things. When he had an encounter with the risen Christ, he counted them all as rubbish, as dung. Because he came to know the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting in yourself, you have no hope unless you repent and believe. You say, repent of what? Repent of your self-righteousness. 
Instead of lifting your eyes up to the heavens saying, I thank you, O God, that I'm not like other men, remember your condition. And figuratively speaking, hang your head down and beat upon your own breast and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And find refuge in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the only sure, certain hope is to be found for time and for eternity. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we have attempted to peer into the mysteries of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We confess that we have not attempted to uh, tickle ears this morning. Lord, as these words have gone forth, we pray that you might bless them and use them for the salvation of your people, uh, for the exercise and the encouragement of genuine, sincere faith, uh, that we might know that we indeed have a certain confidence But may we also know that our confidence is only found in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finding our confidence there, may we then bring forth the expressions of the praise and the thanksgiving that your name is worthy of. And we ask for your blessing then to that end for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.